If you're new to Revolution Church, uh, we like to study the books of the Bible as they are written, one verse at a time. And so currently we are in the Gospel of Luke, and we are getting to know the real Jesus. Uh, today we'll be in chapter 7. And let me remind you that if you have any questions at any time, just text them on in. I got my cell phone right here. I won't answer it till the end, but it won't interrupt me. You'll be fine. And um, so any question about anything regarding the message or the Bible in general, we'll be glad to do that. Our... Uh, Scripture reader this morning is Curtis Carr. Good morning, Curtis. How are you? Curtis, before you read the Bible for us, would you uh, just tell us about where y'all are from and how y'all found Revolution Church? Yeah, sure. We um, are originally from Montgomery County up north. We lived there all our lives, grew up there together, married there, the whole thing, and uh, have two wonderful kids, uh, one of which has uh, moved a few years ago over to Pearland, and so we in order to help with the grandkids and uh, be with them a little bit closer, we decided to move down here. So we moved down here in August and uh, have been here since then searching for a church and uh, praying that God would lead us to one. Certainly, uh, we feel that uh, the church here is uh, one that God's leading us to. So Amen. we thank God for that. Amen. We're very glad that you're here. And uh, so would you read, and you all follow along on the screen as Curtis reads God's word. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the man had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before the Lord. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I saw a bumper, bumper sticker I liked a lot. It said, nerd today, boss tomorrow. <laughs> and I have some friends that are like that. 
These are the very people that were made fun of in school, and now they sign your paycheck. And so, you know, someone who falls in that category, it seems kind of weird and odd, is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was odd. <laughs> he was really weird and strange. And yet, Jesus says he's the greatest in the kingdom of God. And so I think he fills that bumper stick out pretty well. He probably had it on his chariot, I imagine, driving around, I'm not sure. But Luke, uh, we're going to divide this passage up into uh, five spots. And first of all, there's the question from John. John sends a question to Jesus with two messengers. Then there's the answer Jesus says, sends for John. And then there's the, the praises about John. And then the baptism of John. And then the comparison with John. So let's jump right into these. First, let's talk about the question that John sent. First of all, it says the disciples of John. So remember, John came before Jesus. He was six months older than Jesus. Remember, Mary went to go visit her cousin, Elizabeth, and they both had miraculous births. Mary was a virgin, young lady, never been with a man. Elizabeth was very old, past the age of bearing children. And here they both have miracle children inside of them. John the Baptist, six months older, so they are also like second or third cousins. And John had followers. He was, you know, preaching the gospel of the kingdom to come, preparing the way for Jesus. And people started to follow him and follow his message. And he takes two of these guys while he's in prison. So a little backstory there. Why is John in prison? Well, Philip had taken his brother's wife, who was also their niece. It was really weird. Incestuous relationship. Sounds like something from Arkansas or something. I don't know. And he steals his wife, and he's committing open adultery in public for all to see. And as a ruler and an official over the people, John the Baptist says, hey, you're sinning, and God's going to judge you for that. And, of course, he didn't like what he had to say, and eventually, you know the story He's going to have his head cut off. But right now he's in jail, and John's discouraged. Here's John, who Jesus says is fantastic, but John's discouraged. He sends these two disciples to Jesus, and it's possible these two disciples were Andrew and John. We don't know. John had lots of disciples, but the Bible only names two of them by name. Some people even speculate that Apollos was one of John's disciples from the book of Acts. Um, but the disciples of John reported all these things to him. So all these things were what we just read about last week and week before, the miracles that, John, that Jesus is doing. He's performing miracles left and right. Now think about that. You're one of the most devout followers of Jesus, and you are where? In jail. And Jesus is doing miracles, and you're like, okay, how about me? Woohoo, <laughs> Jesus, I'm still here. You said you came to set the captives free. Well, I qualify. I'm a captive. What's going on here? And so all, it goes on to say in verse 19, calling two of his disciples, he sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? John just got done telling the whole world, hey, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And now John is so defeated. He's like, was I wrong? Are you the guy? But notice what his option is. Or should we look for another? Do you know anybody that's been disillusioned with God, has fallen out of church, has deconstructed? And they'll say, well, you know, there were just hypocrites there, or this happened, or I don't know if the Bible's true. But the question is, but do they look for another? Do they really pursue truth? Or do they want a reason not to pursue truth? Do they want to just say, oh, I give up? 
You see, John is least determined. Look, Jesus, if you're not it, we'll, we'll, I'll look for another. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up on the whole idea that a Messiah is to come. And so he's willing to, to make that search. Even someone as spiritually strong as John the Baptist could have serious doubts. So if you're here this morning and you have your doubts, great. You're in a good place. That's why we have question and answer. That's why we, we handle skeptics' questions, and we don't discourage that. John the Baptist could go through that. You and I could go through that. So let me give you some help here. What to do when you begin to doubt your faith. Number one, let me encourage you to get godly advice. Don't withdraw. Don't just try to figure this out all by yourself. The Bible says that where there are, is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Think of some people you know that are genuinely godly, not like the hypocrites you've seen, but people you think, wow, I really respect them. Get their advice and get some counsel on this before you just deconstruct and walk away from the Lord. Number two, get into the word. It says that in Romans 10, 17, that faith, and that's what you're struggling with. Do I have enough faith? Where do you get faith? Faith comes from hearing and hearing what? Through the word of Christ. The Bible is not just another book. It's not like an encyclopedia or Wikipedia or any novel or fiction or whatever. It is a supernatural book that the more you take it in, the more it builds up faith inside of you. I challenge anyone who is questioning Christianity to just read the Gospel of John. For 30 days, just read as much as you can every day and pray and ask God to open your mind and open your heart. And I promise you that you will you have that prayer answered. Faith, if, you, if your faith is struggling, get into the Word, read the Bible, and let it build faith in you. Number three, go to church. It's just that simple. A lot of people that get discouraged and they stop going to church. I would encourage you to go to church. In fact, if a church that you were attending, even if it's this one, you're disappointed. You feel like, oh, it's let me down. Look at why. And if you feel like you have le legitimate reasons, do like John the Baptist. Should we look for another? Okay, go. I, I, I'm, I'm not the monopoly on truth here, obviously. You know that. I'm an imperfect man just like all of us. Find a good Bible-believing church. But if you're looking for the perfect church, <laughs> you're going to be disappointed, okay? Um, to stop going to church because people aren't perfect is like stop going to the gym because people are out of shape. <laughs> we go to the gym to get in shape. We go to church to become better people. And Psalm 73, David was discouraged. David was the apple of God's eye. He had a heart for God. He wrote most of the Psalms. He wrote beautiful songs about God, and yet he struggled. And here's, here's what he said to himself. He said in Psalm 73, all in, in vain I have kept my heart clean. I mean, what a waste of time. I'm trying to live a good life, live a clean life. Everybody else out, is out there just sinning, and they seem like they're having a better life than I am. I've done this all for nothing. He said and it seemed like a wearisome task. But then he says in verse 17, all that seemed vain and wearisome until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. That yeah, they may have in their best life now partying it up, and I may seem like I'm deprived, but I know what happens to them in the end. I know what happens to me in the end. And that's what we have to look forward to is the future. And where do we get that kind of information? When we go to the house of God, then we realize that we're not living for the here and now only. We're living for the future. We're living for what's best and for eternity and for Christ. Number four, I would tell you to doubt your doubts. Dr. Timothy Keller says this, it's okay to honestly doubt your faith, but you also need to doubt your doubts. Well, what do you mean by that? What does he mean by that? 
Ask yourself why you're questioning. Let me say it this way. Is there a selfish motive for me to have doubts? When do most people doubt Christianity? It's when they go off to college. So they grow up in church, maybe. They learn the Bible. They learn the Bible lessons. They go to church with mom and dad. They hear all these things. Then they go to college, and some professor tells them, the Bible is full of contradictions. The Bible is, you know, imperialistic, colonialistic, and oppressive. And the Bible is all this. And they make up all these things that are not true. And, and then you're, you're in college, and, man, there's girls everywhere, and there's parties happening, and there's all kinds of wild living going on. But my mom and dad told me that's not right. And they told me you don't do that because the Bible says that's wrong. But man, I really want to do this. And my professor says it's okay. Hmm, it's convenient. Oh, I don't believe the Bible anymore. Let's party, hearty, let's go. You know, and that's, that's what a lot of people, not everybody. Some people have some honest doubts, but some people doubt their faith because it is no longer convenient. I don't want to have to live in this box. I don't want to have to live by these rules and whatever. And, and so is there a possible selfish motive to doubting your doubts? There's a, maybe it's, it'll be a convenient time in your life not to be Christian. It says, and when the men had come to him, they said, so that John sends these two men to, to men to Jesus. They said, John the Baptist has sent us to you. Notice they're saying, hey, we're not asking these questions. <laughs> Don't get mad at us, Jesus. <laughs> we're, just, we're just the messengers. Don't get mad. Um, are you still, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? Notice they, they quoted John the Baptist verbatim. When you see the Bible repeat things, don't think, why? The Bible keeps repeating itself over and over again. Why? They, he wants you to know they said exactly what John said. They didn't change the message at all. And then it says, in that hour, while all this was going on, while they're having this discussion with Jesus, it's right on the heels and in the midst of Jesus healing many people of their diseases and plagues, Diseases would be things that you're born with. Plagues would be things that you caught. But evil spirits, notice, they weren't saying that every disease is caused by an evil spirit. Some people think that. They think, oh, just rebuke the devil and all that stuff. No, the Bible makes it clear. There's, there's diseases and there's plagues and there's things caused by demons. Both are true. People tend to go to one extreme or the other. They say everything's demonic or everything has a medical explanation and there's no, you know, none of that superstition stuff. The Bible clearly teaches both. And then there's people who's blind that he gave them their sight. So let's move on to what is Jesus' answer for John. Verse 22 says, And he answered them, these two messengers, Go and tell John what you have seen. So they're asking the question in the midst of all this healing going on. And I want you to tell them what you've seen and what you've heard. They just saw a few miracles right there on the spot. But they've heard of many, many more. Tell them all of that. Tell them how the blind receive their sight, how the lame walk, how the lepers are cleansed, how the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news or the gospel preached to them. So he said, tell them all about the miracles, but also tell them about what I'm saying as far as the gospel, the good news, that, that I am here to save souls. I am here to, to seek and to save those who are lost. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, that's a really bizarre statement. Go tell them all these great things are happening, and then also tell them, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Why would someone be offended? Would the blind guy be offended? He just got his sight? <laughs> would the leper be offended? His body was cleansed? Would the, would the mother of a dead son be offended at Jesus because she, he raised her dead son? No. Who would be offended by Jesus doing all this? John the Baptist. John the Baptist is like, 
yeah, everybody but me? I'm here in prison. I'm like your number one spokesperson. What about me? And he's saying, hey, tell John he's going to be blessed if he doesn't stumble or get offended at me. The Greek word here for offended is scandalon, where we get our word scandal. Don't let this trip you up and destroy you. Don't be scandalized by this. So who would be offended by these miracles? It would be John the Baptist. And so this is a message just for John, his cousin, whom he loves greatly. So let me ask you this question. Will you be offended or stumble when Jesus allows you to go through pain and doesn't do a miracle for you? Many, many people that I've talked to who have walked away from Christianity are like, well, there was a time when I really needed God to do this. You know, someone was dying of cancer and I asked God to heal him and he didn't. Or I was going through a divorce, I asked God to heal my marriage and he didn't. And so what that amounts to is I will follow God as long as he does what I say. That's not Christianity. Christianity is you do what he says. And you trust him that what he's asking you to do is what is best for you. We live in a messed up world, right? It, it is, and it all happened not because God messed it up, but because people mess it up. Most of what the things that you suffer, the things that I go through, are not caused by God, but by some person. Some person talking trash, some person messing up whatever circumstances. You know, people do things to you, people do things. Jesus doesn't assault children doesn't misuse women. People do that to people. People make sinful choices. And people make sinful choices because they have free will. And we, we, don't, we want God to step in and stop that, but do we want God to step in and stop us when we make our selfish choices? See, God either gives free will or he doesn't. And my question is, what would it take for you to stop following Jesus? Or do you truly trust him that he's going to get you through this life, through the pain, the suffering, the ups and the downs, and that ultimately he will glorify himself through your life and that you will be a true follower of him without stumbling. The third point is the praise is about John. Notice the timing of when Jesus does this. When John's messengers had gone, then Jesus starts saying all this. Jesus did not want to say this in front of them. He didn't want them to transfer what he's about to say to John. He wanted John to focus on what he said. Don't, you'll be blessed if you don't stumble. You'll be blessed if you're not offended. And so he began to speak to the crowds about John. And here's what he says about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Remember, the wilderness is where John the Baptist was preaching. He didn't go into the heart of Judaism there by the temple. He was calling people to repentance, to walk away from their dead religion, and come out into the wilderness and hear and preach. And people did. By the thousands, they went out there, and they were baptized by him in the wilderness. And he's like, when you, when you guys went, all of you, hundreds and thousands of you went out there to see him, did you go out there to, what did you go to see? Did you want to see a reed that was shaken by the wind? It's a rhetorical question, which means the answer is implied. The answer is no. We didn't go out there to see someone who was wishy-washy. You know, the wind blows this way, so they're going to say this. And then when this is popular and the wind blows this way, they're going to say this. You know, that, that's what politicians do. He, you see, in Ephesians, it talks about the wind, and it says no, that we should no longer be children. If someone called you childish, that would be a pretty big insult, right? Because <laughs> children, they, like, they run over here, they do this. And then and right in the middle of the game, they drop that, and they run over here and do this. And then they drop that, and they go down here, and they leave a mess everywhere they go. You know, they just kind of flit around, right? And he's saying, don't be children. Children who are tossed to and fro like the waves. 
carried about by every wind of doctrine. You know, what's popular now? Oh, I'm going to go hear that. Who's popular now? I'm going to go hear his. I'm going to read his book. You know, I'm going to watch this person online. And just bouncing back and forth from one teacher to another. And he's saying, that's not John the Baptist. John wasn't a reed being blown around the wind. Again, politicians, there's an old phrase, you know, lick your finger and stick it in the air to see which way the wind's blowing. So if this is a hot button issue, I'm going to, as a politician, talk about this to get votes. Oh, man, and, and if this is not popular, people don't like, I'm not even going to talk about that issue. And people just do whatever it takes to be elected. Did you think John was some type of politician out there where it just whatever the wind was doing, he's blowing with it like a reed? No, that's not John the Baptist at all. He was the opposite. So he's asking another rhetorical question. So what then did you go out to see? Did you see a guy, a man dressed in, in soft clothing? In other words, poor people had rough clothing because they couldn't afford the fine cotton linens or the silk. Rich people could afford that. And behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. John wasn't some guy trying to impress you with the latest drip and he's just trying to look all cool and be in style with everything. He was out there. Anybody remember? What did John the Baptist wear? Camel's hair. It was rough, okay? And he, he had a, a rough clothing, had a rough diet, in a rough place to preach a rough message. He wasn't trying to win people's opinion. John the, John the Baptist was a very sketchy dude in some ways, and he wore radical clothing because he was. He was a revolutionary. He was a radical person. He was not trying to make people like him. He's preaching, you need to repent. You need to give up your sin. You need, you're going to be lost if you don't accept the Messiah that's coming, and I'm here to prepare his way. And he didn't preach a, a soft message. He, he cut the truth right down the middle. So, and what then did you go out to see? A prophet? The first two questions, the answer was no. This one, he tells you the answer. Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. And that's quite a statement because... John the Baptist was a lot like Elijah. He was very rough. He was very controversial. He told people like it is. And you look at all the Old Testament prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Micah. Were any of them popular? No. None of them were popular. They were all told, oh, you need to be quiet. Stop telling us bad news. Just, just tell us the good news. And, and no, don't be controversial. And John, Jesus is saying, hey, he's just like them. In fact, he's even better than them. Matthew 3, verse 4 says, Now, when John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food or his diet was locusts and honey. Okay? He's eating a really crazy diet, and he's, he's imitating, again, the prophets of the Old Testament. They answered him, and he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist, and he said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. So he's Elijah come another time. So John the Baptist dressed in uncomfortable clothes. He ate an uncomfortable diet. He called people to, out to an uncomfortable desert place to hear a very uncomfortable message or repentant, of repentance that would result in uncomfortable lifestyle change. Everything John did was uncomfortable. And today's Christianity is like, I just want to go to hear a message that is positive. Just three ways to become a better dad, you know, just some pop psychology and, and comfort and make you feel good. And that's not all of the Bible. The Bible is rough and uncomfortable in some places, and it's very comforting other places. It's both. You can't get out of balance one way or another. That's why it's important to teach verse by verse. So you don't just pick and choose the ones you like. 
the ones that you want to cross-stitch and put on a plaque on your wall. There's some things about Christianity that make us uncomfortable. We, we look for people in our lives that make us feel comfortable. What you really need is someone who makes you better. Do you, you know, you and your spouse, you're probably very much opposite, right? <laughs> in many ways. If you married someone just like you, that would be like the Stepford Wives, an old book and movie, where you, it's just like a robot. Say, yes, dear, you're always right, dear. Yes, dear, you're, you're, you know. And do you want kind of, kind of person? No, we don't want that in a spouse. I mean, sometimes it makes us what? Uncomfortable. Sometimes your spouse tells you, you need to stop doing that. That's a bad habit. And, you know, nobody else would tell you that, but they would. And your spouse should make you another per, a better person, and they need to make you feel uncomfortable time. Why would we expect any less than a relationship with God? People say, well, I agree with these parts of the Bible, and I agree, disagree with these parts of the Bible. Like we're picking and choosing, like we're at the Golden Crowd Buffet, picking and choosing what we like. What about the things that aren't good for you, Isaiah? Broccoli, right? <laughs> There's the things that Isaiah, is that, if it's green, Isaiah's not interested, okay? But the things that make us feel uncomfortable are the things we need. And John had the guts and the character to, to teach these tough messages. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, watch this here. Um, it says, Behold, I will send my messenger before you, before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus is quoting from Malachi, which is written about 485 years before this is happening, okay? So it's follow the context now of Malachi carefully, okay? It says in chapter 2, verse 17, it says, You have wearied the Lord. When you see the word Lord in all uppercase, what name is that? That's Jehovah. Jehovah, God, okay? The God of the Old Testament, okay? Now watch this carefully. You've wearied Jehovah with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? How have we wearied God? By saying, everyone who does evil is good. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? In the sight of the Lord. Again, what is the Lord? Jehovah. And delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So who is all this talking about? It's talking about the God Jehovah, the God uh, Jehovah, the Old Testament. And he says, behold, in chapter, the next verse in the next chapter says, behold, I will send my messenger. Who's speaking here? Jehovah is speaking God of the Old Testament is saying, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. The Lord will come into his temple. Jehovah will. And yet Jesus quotes that and says, it's my messenger, proving that Jesus is Jehovah. You see, the Mormons teach and Jehovah's Witness teach that God, Jehovah God, created Jesus as a separate creation. No. The Bible clearly teaches there's one God, with three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equally God. And Jesus is claiming to be the Jehovah God of the Old Testament. He says, I tell you, among those who are born of women, none is greater than John. He's saying, yeah, this is the greatest guy up to this point. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. And I don't think the word greater here means greater in rank. I think it means greater in privilege. For example, um, Susan B. Anthony fought for women's suffrage, the right to vote. And she was successful, but the laws did not get passed until after she died. So she did all this work to give women the right to vote, but the women who came after Susan B. Anthony had more voting privileges than she did. And you and I, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have even more keys to the kingdom 
and more access to the Word of God than even John the Baptist did. And so what character trait made John great that would also make anyone great in the kingdom of God? What, Jesus is saying you could be greater than John the Baptist. What did he have that we, you and I can have? It's meekness. John was not on an ego trip. He wasn't promoting himself. He was promoting Jesus. He didn't want the spotlight on him. He wanted the spotlight on, on Jesus. He later said that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. All four Gospels talk in great detail about John the Baptist. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, in fact, in Mark chapter 3, verse 15, we say, as the people were in expectation, as they're wanting a Messiah to come, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John. Hey, maybe he's the Christ. And John had a, a chance to steal Jesus' thunder and be in the limelight, and, but John doesn't do that. John answered them and saying, I baptize you with water. I'm just doing some simple here, everything where you get wet. But he, the Messiah, Jesus, who is mightier than I, he is coming. And the strap of his sandals, I'm not even worthy to untie. He saw himself as lower than a slave. That I don't, I don't even, I'm not even worthy to even touch his shoes, his dirty, nasty sandals, all dusty. I'm not even worthy to even touch them. John 3.30 is when he says, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. When's the last time you said that about yourself? I just want to decrease. I don't want people to think about me. <laughs> We're usually like, me, me, my, me, you know, and just always topping people's stories, and well, then other day I did this, and yeah, and we won this, and blah, blah, blah. And John's like, hey, no, no, no. I just want to fade into the background. Y'all just love Jesus. Just, I did my job. And so that's, that's the attitude that he had. My, my son, Adrian, goes to a great church up in uh, northwest Arkansas called Fellowship Church, and, this, and I've shared this with you before, but I want to repeat it because it fits today really well. Here is their elders' motto. We want our leadership fingerprints to be everywhere and our names nowhere. When you walk into the church, there's not pictures of the elders all over the wall. Their names, not the first names listed on the website or in the bulletin. They just want to be behind the scenes serving people. They said they want our fingerprints and the results of our work and our ministry to be everywhere, but our names to be nowhere. Galatians 2.20 points to scripture that backs this up. It says, I have been crucified. This is what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's amazing. Paul then gives us the key to how John could be so humble with the next verse. He says, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here's why. Because he loved me and he gave himself for me. When you find yourself getting a little cocky, a little proud, a little full of yourself, stop and think how much Jesus loved you and why he loved you and why he gave himself for you because you were a sinner. You were one lost and under the wrath of God on your way to hell. And Jesus says, Father, I'm going to earth and I'm going to save them. Instead of punishing them, punish me. I will take all their sins upon myself, and the death that they deserved, I will die. And the life that they should have lived, I will live. Jesus switched places with you. And that's the greatest gift offered to you ever in the history of mankind. Well, have you received that gift? And then we move on to our next point here, the baptism of John. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, that's interesting, who was the most hated people in that culture? <laughs> tax collectors, because they had betrayed their nation they had betrayed God and his people, and they were extortionists and, and collecting undue, unfair amount of taxes from the people. They were excited. 
because they're like, wow, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and I'm excited that he's it. And they declared that God was just. They declared God to be just. In other words, God had every right to punish us. God had every right because we deserve what we've done wrong. It's like the two thieves on the cross. Remember, Jesus is in the middle, and there's a cross on either side, and these guys were murderers on either side and thieves. And, and they, first of all, they're, they're both railing on Jesus, the Bible says. They're like, man, if you're the Messiah, why don't you get us down? And they're blaspheming him and cursing him. And then Jesus says about them, and especially about the Roman soldier's father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And one of the thief, thieves is like, wait a minute. He's loving these guys who just nailed him to a cross? He's forgiving these guys who just put nails in his hands? That just beat him to a pulp, literally? And then he's concerned about his mom and saying, John, take care of mom. Mom, take care of John. He's not thinking about anybody. He's thinking about everybody but himself. And then he's like, wait, wait a minute. Hey, over there, you be quiet. Stop, stop blaspheming the Lord. What we're getting here, we deserve. But this man has done nothing. And then he looks at Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, you need to get baptized. Then you'll be, nope. You need to give money to the church. Nope, nope. You need to keep 10 commandments. Nope. Here this guy is nailed to a cross. He can do nothing but to repent and receive Christ. And he did. And Jesus says, there you go. You will be with me in paradise today. See, they... And they realized that God was just, that God took out his punishment on Christ that should have been on us, and that, that was what was justice. Justice was met there. And having baptized with the baptism of John. John had a baptism beforehand. And see, in the Old Testament, there, the people who were baptized were Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. They, they believed in a pagan God, and then they realized Jehovah was the true God. So they say, well, I want to become part of the, the, the tribes of Israel. And they'd say, okay, we well, need to get baptized and show that you're washing away all your past and you're becoming a new person. And so that's what Gentiles did. And John the Baptist told the Jews, you need to be baptized. Like, what? We're Jews. He's like, yeah, but your hearts are far away from God. You're acting like Gentiles. You're acting like pagans. And so people did. They followed. That was the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, the scribes who wrote the Bible and interpreted the Bible and, and put it into practice under that theocracy, they rejected the purpose of God, watch this, for themselves, not having been baptized by John. God's purpose for them was to receive salvation, and they rejected it. Did you know that God's purpose for you is to be saved? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And what did these, these Pharisees and these lawyers do? The most religious people of the day were Jesus' biggest enemies, and they said, no, 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 we're not getting baptized. We're not going to do that. We're not going to follow you when John's the one who is the messenger of the Lord. I want to get really specific and practical today. I, actually, I want you to picture just for a moment that you and I are sitting across the table at a coffee shop, and I'm asking you these questions, okay? When were you born? Think about that in your mind. When were you born? From that point from which you were born, you, you will live in, for eternity somewhere. This is an indefinite arrow that goes out into eternity. Even though your body may die, what's inside of you, your spirit, your soul will live because God breathed the breath of life into mankind and we became living souls. That's what makes us different than animals. When, you're, when your dog dies, they cease to exist. Okay, 
you may see them in heaven, maybe not. That would be a miracle of God, but that's a whole other subject. But they don't have a soul, but you do. You will live eternally somewhere. And so the next question is, when you think about today, here we are, March 3rd, 2024, I want to ask you this question, are you saved? Have you personally realized that you're a sinner in need of a Savior who deserves the wrath of God, but you now know that Jesus took the wrath of God, he took all that punishment for you, and your only hope of going to heaven is not based on how good you are, but how great God is, and that you you accept that free gift that he paid this, your punishment for you and he offers you eternal life. Have you been saved? When I say saved, I mean saved from the punishment of God. I'm not talk- One time I was sharing the gospel like this with a, a family and I asked the mom this question. She said, well, I remember years ago my son was dying of cancer and I asked God to heal him and he did. I said, okay, that saved your son from cancer, but have you been saved from the punishment that's coming upon you? She said, well, no, I just had that great experience, and I'm, that's what I'm holding on to. I'm like, that's not the salvation we're talking about. We're talking about being saved from your sins. In other words, as Jesus says, have you been born again? The first was your birth, the first time you were born. And Jesus, like he told Nicodemus, a religious man, you must be born again. The first one is a physical birth. The second one is what? A spiritual birth. Have you been spiritually born again? For me... It was August, I don't know what day, back in 1973. I was nine years old at Vacation Bible School. I realized I was a sinner. I heard the gospel preached. I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. I asked him to forgive me my sins and, and come into my life. All that is what I did at that time. And that's when I was born again. I was born the first time physically, March 10th, 1964. I was born, I don't know the exact date, and you don't have to either. I just know I was there in August of 1973. Can you picture a date? or maybe you don't know the exact date like me, but do you know where you were when it happened? That's the question I would ask you to answer right there where you're seated. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand or do anything. I just want you to answer that between you and God. So let's say you say, yes, I know I'm saved. I, 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 I remember the date. I know when I, was, I truly trusted Christ. Now my next question is, so when, did you, when were you baptized? Were you baptized after you've made that decision? Some people say, well, I was baptized when I was a baby. Nowhere in the Bible do you ever see a baby baptized. That's why we're not Lutheran or Presbyterian or Methodist or any of those things. I'm not knocking them. I'm not saying they're not true Christians. I just think they're wrong on baptism because you don't see it anywhere in the Bible. In fact, you see the opposite. You see people desiring to be baptized being told you need to be saved first. And a two-week-old baby doesn't know how to be saved. It doesn't even understand the concept of sin, let alone a savior. So baptism has to follow salvation. Baptism is not salvation. I'm not asking, the, the thief on the cross, he got saved. Did he get baptized? No. Did he go to heaven? Yes. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is something you do to follow the Lord's command to show what's been done. I'll talk about that more in a second. So some people say, so that, that, if you're baptized as a baby, that doesn't count. That's not biblical. Some people say, well, I was baptized when I was 12, but I didn't really understand what I was doing, and I didn't get saved until I was 19. Does that baptism count? No, you just got wet, and that water probably wasn't very clean either. It didn't wash away anything. So that baptism doesn't count if it was before your salvation. What every person needs to do is trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. When they do that, they're born again, they're saved, they're on their way to heaven. But what baptism does is it makes that decision public. 
Here's how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 6. He says, We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Many of you have seen a baptism. You stand there in water. What does the water represent? It represents the grave. And what you're saying is, hey, I got saved. And I want to let everybody know that I am now one of you. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And I believe that Jesus died for me and that he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. That's baptism. That's why we don't baptize babies. Because this does not symbolize this. This is the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the water represents the grave, then doing this to a baby is symbolic of throwing dirt at a baby. That's what it would represent. And so my question for you is, have you made your decision to follow Christ, to be born again, public? Have you, have you been baptized like this right here since you've been saved? If not, let's talk. And the last Sunday of each month is when we do baptisms. We'd love to baptize you and help you make your decision public as a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we saw the question from John. Are you him or should I keep looking? And then there's the answer given back to John. Hey, miracles are happening. I'm confirming that I'm the real deal. And then after the messengers left, he said, hey, you know, John, he wasn't some guy being blown about in the wind. He stood for what was right. And many of you accepted his baptism and some did not. And then our last point this morning is the comparison with John. He said, well, what do I compare? Jesus is talking here. The people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children, <laughs> not a compliment. Sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, and, and this is a really interesting illustration because in biblical times, when kids got together, they played, they pretended. You know, like when little kids get together and say, oh, you know, you be the mommy, I'll be the daddy, and here's the kitchen, and you know, we'll put the baby down for a nap, and they pretend, right? And the two big events that happened in social life during Jesus' time was funerals and weddings. So they would pretend, hey, let's have a funeral. You're the dead person, whatever. And they would pretend. And they would say, oh, let's do it like a wedding. You be the bride, I'll be the groom. And we'll all dance and we'll celebrate like we're at the reception. So we play the flute, but you didn't dance. And when we sang a dirge, like, hey, let's pretend we're doing a funeral and you didn't weep. It's like, no matter what game we chose, you guys are not, don't want to play. You guys are being just a bunch of brats. That's what he's saying to them. He's saying, you, you Pharisees and religious people you're just a bunch of brats. No matter what John the Baptist does or what I do, you're not happy. In other words, John comes and he's not eating normal food. He's living a really strict lifestyle. And you're like, oh, we don't like him. He's, he's, he's just so reactionary and so right-wing and all this other stuff. And then I come and I'm eating and drinking and having a great time. And you say, oh, look at you. You're a drunk and, and, and you're hanging out with the wrong people. He says, for John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, well, he has a demon. And then the Son of Man, Jesus, comes and he's eating and drinking. And you look, say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. One of those was true. He wasn't a drunk. He wasn't a glutton. Those two were sins and Jesus never sinned. But he was definitely a friend with the wrong crowd. He wasn't too good for them. So, um, Elvis, you'll get the light. Here's a clip from The Chosen. And it's a little bit longer than I normally like, but it's really good. So I think it, I always like to teach the passage first and then show the video so that the scripture interprets the video, not the other way around. All right, enjoy. And make sure the volume is nice and loud.
the doctors say the only remedy is to amputate. Amputate? Well, now, it does not look good at all. As soon as he showed up here, Saranda, he's safe. He'll be. Soon might be now. Let's get John's question answered. of your cousin's disciples, Avner and Adam. Jesus of Nazareth? That name I respond to readily, or I'll not be returning to Nazareth in this lifetime. The baptizer has an urgent question for you. I recognize you from the day John introduced me to Andrew. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Yes, good memory. <laughs> My cousin can get excited. So. What does John want to know? Simon brought us in haste. This isn't appropriate here. We can talk later. Simon, I actually think now is the perfect time. Who here has experienced John the baptizer in some way? I know some of you rejected John. But some of you believed his message. He has had a profound impact on so many in this region. And these are two of his disciples, so let's welcome them. Hmm?
Some of you may also know that John is currently imprisoned by Herod in Machairus. I think it would be instructive for us to hear what's on his mind in the midst of such challenge. It's a difficult question. It might be better privately. It's fine. This is healthy. <clears throat> he sent us to ask you if you are really the one who is to come. Or should we look for someone else? Say that last part again. Should we look for someone else? For those of you who could not hear, John the baptizer, my cousin, who has prepared the way for me, is now questioning if I'm the Messiah or if maybe we should keep waiting. John is getting impatient, yes? It's one of his quirks. He has been in prison a long time. Word reached our ears about what happened in Nazareth, that you said the spirit of the Lord is upon you to proclaim liberty to the captives. If you say you are here to free prisoners, then why does he remain? He rightfully wonders why you would allow his entire ministry to be halted by an impostered king. Proclaiming liberty to the captives can mean more than just freeing inmates. There are many kinds of captivity that keep people. Is that what we're supposed to tell him? No, that's just for you. We heard our former comrades Andrew and Philip have gone to the Decapolis. Is that where you're planning to launch the revolution to overthrow Rome? I have something in mind for the Decapolis. And it will be revolutionary, but probably not in the way you're thinking. What are we supposed to report back? Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The mute speak. And the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I will always be offended by blasphemy. As should all of you. You saw what happened to his daughter. You know this isn't blasphemy. I did not see what happened. Your supposed rabbi disrespected me as a holy man. Another sign of his evil spirit. And I also don't know any of the details that happened. He is hiding something. And I cannot stand here and allow you all to be deceived by his sorcery. Even if I'm the only one willing to protect you. Go. Relate to my cousin what you have seen and heard here today. And add to that the dead are raised as well. And tell John I love him. Did my response to the baptizer's disciples sound to any of you like a rebuke? Yes. I can always count on you, Nathaniel. Many of you were baptized by John. I myself was baptized by him. You heard how strong he was, how passionately he believed. And yet now, even he has questions. When you went to the wilderness to see him, 
Did you expect to see a reed shaken by the wind? Someone in fine clothing, like those in king's courts? Or did you go to see a prophet? Prophet. A prophet. Yes. And I tell you, John is who Isaiah and Malachi spoke of. What did they say, Big James? Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare the way before you. Yes, and this should tell you something. Among those born of women, none is greater than John. And even he has questions. Another demon-possessed blasphemer, and you call him great. He called your religious leaders, you and men of God, vipers. Are you going to say something? I think his silence is his response. And here's what's so wonderful, though. None are greater than John here on Earth. In the kingdom of God, the one who is the least is even greater than he. And John himself would say the same. So please, listen carefully. Do not waste the time right now to hear the truth that I have for you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yet so many in this generation are missing it. Do not miss it. Those of you who have rejected John's message of repentance, and those who are now rejecting mine, you remind me of the children in the marketplace that play games while the adults are busy. And you know how they pretend to be adults in a wedding or even a funeral. You are like the children who refuse to play. Whether it's a happy game or a sad game, it doesn't matter what it is. And like Aesop's fable, the others say, we played the flute for you and you did not sing. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. You and those in your order, Say, John has a demon because he lived in the wilderness, preaching repentance while refusing bread and drink. And now the Son of Man comes, preaching salvation while eating and drinking and dancing. And I'm called a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It doesn't matter what is put in front of you. You will reject it. Beware of this. Wisdom means nothing if it's not acted on. Wisdom is justified by all her works. As you see what is happening to those around you, as you see the lives being changed by repentance and salvation, do not ignore the evidence of the kingdom of God. Woe to you if you do not receive it. So many times people <clears throat> are just being spoiled brats. No matter what you put in front of them, they're not going to be happy. When they go to church and they see people being hypocrites, as they say, see, they're sinners, they're hypocrites, just like me, they're no better than me. Then when they go to a church where everybody's acting and living right, they'll say, oh, they all think they're better than me. It's like, which is it? We're a bunch of hypocrites or we're, we all think we're perfect? You know, it's, and I'm not condemning people like that because I was once that way. 
we need to realize that there are no perfect people. There's only a perfect Savior. It says they, they weren't happy with John the Baptist. They weren't happy with Jesus. I remember years ago in our church, there was a leader in our church that said, our church is doing too much to appeal to lost people. Sunday morning seems like it's about making lost people feel welcome. And then three years later, a different leader came to me and said, our church doesn't do enough to appeal to lost people. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to do. You know, I want to make lost people feel welcome here. I, I don't, that's why we don't wear jackets and ties and stuff like that, because a lot of people don't have dress clothes, and there's some churches you have to dress up to go, and that makes people feel uncomfortable. That's nothing in the Bible about that, so why would we do that? So let's cast that aside. But at the same time, we need to preach the gospel, and we're, we're trying to strike that balance, but there's always going to be people who are unhappy no matter what. And then he says this great verse here. He says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let me paraphrase it this way. Wisdom, a certain way of thinking, is proven right or wrong by what it produces. A certain way of thinking is right or wrong depending on what it produces. Let me ask you a question. What has Christianity produced? Hospitals were invented by Christians. Orphanages were invented by Christians. Slaves were set free by abolitionists who preached the gospel and said that slaves are human beings who need to be set free. When disasters happen around the world, it's the American Red cross or it's Samaritan's purse coming to help. When people are addicted, they go to Alcoholics Anonymous, which was founded by Christians. When homeless people here in Houston need a place to stay, they go to the Star of Hope, a Christian ministry. Christians lead the way in compassion. Are we perfect? No, but you don't see people flocking to Muslim hospitals or Muslim charities or atheist charities, that for, that's for sure. Christians aren't perfect, but we do lead the way in showing the compassion of Christ. So what is the rejection of Jesus? What is that wisdom and teaching produced in our culture today? Well, people want to reject the Bible's definition of marriage, and they say we're right to marry whoever we want. Have you noticed, they won't tell you this statistic, as high as 78% of lesbian marriages end in divorce. That's incredibly high, much higher than heterosexual marriages. They say, well, we need to be socialists. We need to adopt socialism. That, that's, you know, capitalism is evil. But look what socialism have, has done. Hitler was the head of the Nazi party. What's Nazi? National Socialist Party. He killed 12 million people. Stalin killed 20 million of his own people. Athe these were, Stalin and Mao Zedong were atheists. What if, they say Christians have killed each other. Well, there's a bunch of Christians who, in the name of Christ, have done some bad things. But look what's been done in the name of socialists and, and, and atheism. Mao Zedong, 60 million people in just a few short years. The analysis of the Census Bureau's household Pulse survey finds out that 50% of adults ages 18 to 24 reported anxiety and depression in 2023. Isn't it, is it a coincidence that the generation who has walked away from Christianity, who doesn't go to church, who is in the single digits as far as faithful church attendance, is the most depressed, most anxious, and the most suicidal generation? Wisdom is justified by her children. Culture's thoughts is, is judged by the what it produces. Sin is man taking the place of God. I'm going to do what I want to do. This is my life. I can make my choices. Forget the Bible. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to be like God, which is the lie that Satan told Eve in the garden. But salvation is God taking the place of man. Jesus Christ says, I love you anyway. Even though you rebel against me, I'm going to take your place and take your punishment. John 5, 24 says, truly, truly, Jesus speaking here, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him that sent me has eternal life 
He doesn't come into the judgment that he deserves, I could add, but has passed from death to life, from a death sentence to the gift of eternal life if you will trust Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord, take my life, be the boss, you be in control, I give it all to you because you gave everything for me, and you will believe in your heart that he died, was buried, and he rose again, you will be what? You will be saved. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm going to ask believers to pray that God would open the hearts of those who don't know Christ. And if you're one of those and you've never made that decision, when I drew that line with that arrow, have you made a decision? You can make that right now today. You don't need to come here. You don't need to raise your hand. Just right now in your heart of hearts, say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I've heard today that you've died for me and you were buried and you rose again. I thank you for forgiving my sins, and I accept your gift of salvation today. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for opening our hearts so we can see the truth, the hard truth of John the Baptist and Jesus. Thank you for Jesus Christ and the amazing sacrifice of God becoming human flesh to suffer for us when we did not deserve it. We thank you for that amazing love. We ask that you would, uh, may it penetrate our hearts and change our lives, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you have more questions about being a Christian, maybe you're like, Gary, I'm almost there, but I want to talk. Here's my cell phone number. Call me, text me anytime. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Um, All right, we're going to do question and answer session now. We'll kind of make it quick. Uh, Michaela, would you like to help me with that? So um, you can text in your question, or if you just rather, you can can even raise your hand if you like. We have a lot of questions. We may not get to them all because I've gone a little long as it is. what should you do if you have trouble talking to God or praying? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I'll be honest. I, I struggle with that. I don't pray as much as I should. I'm so tempted to, when I walk my dogs, to listen to a podcast or something like that. When I'm, and I'm learning even lately, just this is a great time to talk to God while I'm walking my dogs and let my dogs listen. And so realize this. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So it's a spiritual battle, okay? Satan is like, no, don't talk to God. You're not worthy. He doesn't hear you anyway. He's whispering all kinds of things to you to talk you out of it. Just have a conversation with, with him because think of it this way. He is your heavenly father and you're his child. See yourself like a two-year-old who wants to talk to his daddy. If you will put it in that perspective, then that'll help you a ton, okay? Um, was Jesus the last prophet? Um, Technically, no, because uh, there's two prophets that are going to come during the tribulation, okay? Some people think it's um, Moses and Elijah. I think it's Enoch and Elijah. Um, of course, they've, ex- they've lived before, but the reason I picked those two is Enoch walked with God and he was taken up, so he never experienced death. And Hebrews says it's appointed on the man once to die, so he hasn't experienced death. Elijah also was taken up in a whirlwind, so neither one of them have experienced physical death that I know of. I could be wrong on this. Um, maybe God had them go through the transformation of death to be in a glorified body in heaven. I don't know. But I think that their fulfillment of their death will be when they're the prophets during that time. So, but they last to be born, then I guess Jesus would be last in chronological birth. All right. Um, Moses was saved by being placed in a basket when the command came from Pharaoh to kill all male babies. Is Aaron so much older or younger that he missed that window because of age? Yes. So, 
he was much older. I don't remember how many years, but Pharaoh's edict to kill all the babies, obviously that didn't apply to Aaron because he wasn't a baby, so he would be passed. Uh, so they, in Hebrews, when it talks about that account, the Greek word is, is uh, technon, which means toddlers. So Aaron had to be older than a toddler. So it was like, and it's, of course, that's a precursor to Herod killing all the babies, what age? Two and below. Okay, so Pharaoh and Herod, one was a shadow, one was a type there. So yes, Aaron was spared because he obviously wasn't a toddler. Okay? I think we'll make that the last one then. All right, let's stand and sing with the band as we sing our way out.